Okay, welcome. Thanks so much for coming along. Uh, my name is Rob Waller. I'm a psychiatrist. I work up in the lovely city of Edinburgh, which is quite a long way away from here. But um, I came down yesterday, so I haven't haven't come too far today. Who's who's come from a different country today? Anyone come a long way? Who's come from outside London? There must be lots of people outside London. Yeah, most of you. Good. There we are. Okay. We, we do try and do these in London, but trust me, I'm as sympathetic to you as, as you that we need some things outside London as well. And that's one reason why we put a lot of things on the website. Um, I'm a sort of stand-in this morning because uh, Trevor was hoping to do a seminar, two seminars on dementia. He's actually doing one this afternoon, but he couldn't do two. So I sort of said I would do this one as a topic that we thought might interest some people. And um, we called it sort of tablets and talking treatments. And I guess the idea in, in my head was sort of people often don't know very much about, you know, what happens if you go and see a psychologist, how do psychiatric medicines work anyway. You know, I think we kind of understand that antibiotics get the bacteria in some shape or form, but what, what's happening with, with psychiatric medication? And there's obviously some sort of bigger questions in there like um, how do they work? You know, how can you give a tablet to someone to make them happy when happiness is clearly so much more than um, just, you know, taking a tablet or some levels in your brain? So we'll, we'll, we'll try and cover some questions like that and maybe about how it, how it integrates into faith. And just in terms of how we'll sort of run the, the layout of it, I'm going to talk for about five minutes, and then we'll have some sort of discussion. It'll just be turn to the person next to you and try and... I won't be asking you to reveal anything. There won't be any of the big reveal, as, as, as Will was saying earlier. So it's just going to be turn to the person next to you or get into groups of three or something and just, just, just try and do some discussion just to get things moving. But I'm not going to ask anyone to, to say anything personal. And we'll do the, probably get through sort of three or four of those cycles and then it'll be time for lunch, which is always exciting, isn't it? That's the best part of the day. So one of the things I think is quite helpful, because life is complex, isn't it? You know, life is, is, is a complex thing. And I always think it's helpful to sort of think, well, what are some of the causes of mental distress? And one of the main errors people fall into in this area is they've only got one solution, and if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So, you know, if you think this is all caused by brain problems, then you're going to come up with one particular solution. If you think it's all caused by spiritual problems, then you're going to come up with a solution. If you think it's all caused by... This is, this is Carl Rogers, who sort of founded person-centred therapy, a very, you know, an extreme humanist position. It's just... People don't have the chance to express themselves, then, and, and humans will get there in the end, then you'll have another particular solution. Or if you think it's caused by, by social isolation and shame, a sort of social perspective, then you'll have a solution as well. And of course, the reality is that most problems have lots of different roots behind them, and I'm going to try and sort of cover some of that and tie them together. But I think the main thing is to sort of say there are solutions out there. So, for example, there might be tablet solutions. There might be prayer or spiritual or even miraculous solutions. There might be um, things about unconditional positive regard and inclusion and, and these, these kinds of things. And then there's also things about giving people people to speak to, social cohesion, social inclusion. Um, in my own profession of psychiatry, we've come quite a long way in this, in that there used to be big asylums where people were sort of 
put out of the way. And sometimes when I've done these talks, I've shown a picture of one of the... Just when I started working, it was one of the last asylums in the UK to be closed. And it's called Hyroids, and it's the main asylum for, for West Yorkshire. And there's this big driveway that goes up round some trees, and you have to sort of go up it, and then when you go round the corner, you can see the, the asylum was there. And many asylums have that kind of layout to them geographically, and it was called sending people round the bend. That's what it meant. It meant you send people out of the way, out of sight, out of mind. That's where we're going to put all of the crazy people there. So, actually, get, closing the asylums was hugely important. Now, you can always argue that care in the community perhaps went a little bit too far, and, and some people actually needed, perhaps, to stay in, in environments and hostels where they were getting a lot of care. But, generally speaking, closing the asylums was good. One of the other things that happened was closing, perhaps, day hospitals. And you might be familiar in the mental health services in your area. There's, there's this tension. Do we have services for people with mental health problems? Or do we have mainstream services people with mental health problems can go to? And sometimes you want to go to a place that you know is designed for people with mental health problems. But if that leads you, if that place becomes what's sometimes called a social exclusion unit, you know, where you just go and that's where all the crazy people are now, they're at that workshop or that day hospital, that's no better than the asylum. So anyway, I'm, I'm going on about the, the, the social a little bit because I'm not going to major on that, but it is, it is really important. We're going to be doing these two sort of tablets and, and, and talking treatments um, and, and um, obviously spiritual approaches are important, but again, I'm not going to sort of major on that in terms of trying to get some information ag- across. One thing I'd like to do, just a little warm-up exercise, is, um, and my apologies, that should say 15 billion, not 15 million. 15 billion is the amount that the NHS spends on mental health services in the UK each year. Okay, so what I want you to do is just get into groups of twos or threes, turn to the person next to you, imagine you're the chief executive of the NHS, and you have to decide, are you going to spend £15 billion on, are you going to spend it on tablets and you know, medication and that kind of thing? Are you going to spend it on talking treatments... Did we go back to that? Maybe you're going to spend it on talking treatments and therapists and counsellors and psychologists and that kind of thing. Are you going to spend it on equipping the local church to deliver spiritual interventions to mental health problems? Or are you going to get lots of support workers funded and set up work programmes and all that kind of thing? So you've got £15 billion. You've got to divide it between those four things, medical, psychological, social or spiritual. Off you go, two or three minutes.
Okay, one minute more. Okay. So I'm I'm not going to try and do some complicated Excel spreadsheet and sort of tot everything up. Maybe he'd like us. Maybe he'd like our input. Actually, maybe we ought to tot it all up and we'll send it in and say this this is the answer. This is the most holistic spreadsheet you've got. But just quick sort of show of hands, roughly. Who was giving roughly equal amounts to each of those areas? Was anyone sort of saying that was a, a, a good idea? So a few, folk are, a few folk are doing that. Did anyone give more than £10 billion to any one quarter? Yeah. Okay, good. Okay, I think so. The lady at the back is just saying that she's going to cheat and get rid of one of the quadrants and, and split it three ways. Okay. Yes. Okay, yeah. So, so the idea that sort of talking therapies can come, come through the church, and of course, some churches do do that. Some churches employ counselors, some churches employ nurses, actually. I mean, the nurses tend not to prescribe as such but you know they so the church can and obviously churches run cafes and it could be a cafe designed for people with mental health problems or it could be a cafe that's not that happens to be used by people with mental health problems so there's a whole range of of, of different things and obviously it's it's a slightly silly exercise but one of the reasons for doing it is to sort of point out that all, all four of these things are, are important and I think actually you know when we go around sort of saying oh you know you just need xyz that's almost certainly wrong. It, it's going to be more complicated than that. And one of the things that, that, that we try and teach junior psychiatrists is, yes, okay, your doctors and you're coming in and your particular thing perhaps is around medication, but it's, there's always a, a biopsychosocial formulation. Actually, I was at the Royal College of Psychiatrists yesterday who've got a, a spirituality special interest group, and we were talking about a biopsychosocial spiritual formulation as well because the the spiritual sort of encompasses something that perhaps isn't in the other three areas which is uniquely about personhood and goals and and values and we'd obviously give a a Christian sort of explanation for that for that spirituality okay so quite a lot going on how did we get into this pickle this is my history lesson okay so if you don't like history you can close off for the next few slides but um, first of all a picture of some nice brandy um, which I might have later, because it's going to be a long day, isn't it? So, um, but the reason I've put that up is that there's a word I quite like called quintessence, as in the quintessential, or this is the quintessence, or something. And most people usually think it means, you know, the refined essence or extract of a substance, or the most perfect or typical example of a, you know, he will is the quintessential pastor pre- preacher, isn't he? We heard that in the last sort of, sort of talk. He's he's great at that, um, but. It's this last meaning here. In classical and medieval philosophy, a fifth substance 
in addition to the four elements thought to compose the, hel- and thought to compose the heavenly bodies and to be latent in all things. So we've got the, the four elements, earth, water, fire and iron. That's what they used to think we were made out of. But they said there was this fifth element that kind of bound it all together. And this was the idea behind the first universities. So these four diverse elements would be held together not diversity, in university. So if you go to the University of Alexandria, that was around 2,000 years ago, all the students there would go to every single faculty. They'd learn art, they'd learn mathematics, they'd learn theology, they'd learn science, they'd learn dissection, they'd learn all these different faculties, and they'd go around all these things. And the, the Americans hang on to that a little bit with the idea that you do a major and then perhaps a minor as well. But that's what is meant to happen in universities, is everything studies together. And this quintessential sort of binding that we are meant to be humans who can hold those four quadrants together, you know, the four quadrants on my previous two slides, we, we should be able to hold all of these things together and say, well, I know people in all those areas. Why wouldn't you have all those things? But what happened was, a number of things happened, and again, this is gross simplification, but one thing that happened was a bloke called Henry VIII came along and said, it's time to get rid of all the monasteries. And one of the reasons why was obviously there were issues between the the sort of Protestants and the Catholics and power struggles and so on, but it, it... it illustrated a lot of things that were going on around that, that time and over the next couple of hundred years after. And I guess before this, the hospitals were in the monasteries. So, you know, yeah, I mean, we heard this morning, didn't we, about Bedlam. Um, claims to be the oldest psychiatric hospital in the world. That's not true. I'm afraid that goes to a hospital in Baghdad from the 9th century. Um, so the Muslims won that one, okay? So if anyone tries to tell you that Bedlam is the oldest psychiatric hospital in the world, it's not true. But it's the oldest one in this country from the 12th century. So, so these nuns were running psychiatric hospitals, the, the monks were doing healing poultices and, and you know, were, were studying medicine and such. And when Henry VIII came along and got rid of all the monasteries, he also got rid of all the hospitals. And of course, he also got rid of a lot of the schools and a whole bunch of other things happened around that time. But it was around that time when hospitals were no longer in monasteries. Then if you jump forward a couple of hundred years, you had this situation. Now, this is Nigel Hawthorne in a film, The Madness of King George. And a little joke I always have to tell. um, It was going to be called, the film was going to be called George III. Um, But um, when this was going to be released in America, the Americans wanted to know why they'd missed George and George II. So, so it was called The Madness of King George to sort of tie it all, tie it all together. But, but what happens in this film is that the king develops a mental illness called acute porphyria, which is a, a metabolic condition. It's, it's, it's due to a lack of an enzyme in the liver, and the metabolites build up, and you have a psychotic and a manic episode, basically. And the people who came to attend him were... Doctors, I don't know if you remember the film, they had these doctors and one was obsessed with urine and one with the stool and one with the pulse. But they were very physical doctors. So, so what had happened in between, in between Henry VIII and the madness of King George, physicians had sprung up. And of course, surgeons had, had sprung up with the College of Barber Surgeons and so on. So, so physical health, medicine had become established during that time. But mental health was still the domain of the church. So that was still happening up until this time. Interestingly enough, child psychiatry as a speciality grew out of, in the 1950s, guidance clinics. And guidance clinics were typically run by social workers and the local vicar. 
So child psychiatry has very recent origins in, in this, in terms of medicalizing childhood pathology. But back at this time, the, 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 the priests still did mental health problems. But there's a logical flaw here, because the king is the head of the Church of England. And if the king is the head of the Church of England, you can't have one of his own ministers coming along to cast a demon out of your boss. You see what I mean? You know, if we're saying that psychotic symptoms are due to theological distress or demons or spiritual issues, you can't have someone coming along and exercising the head of the Church of England. It doesn't work. So, so they had a bit of an issue here, and they, they tried to treat this mental illness medically, and it's one of the first times that it, it, was, it was happening purely medically. And eventually got this bloke in who was a behavioural therapist. Now, interestingly enough, in the film, he also had a dog collar on but that's part of the subtleties of the film. But basically, he was a behavioural therapist, and he basically did Pavlovian conditioning and operant conditioning to stop the king being psychotic. I mean, it's a, this is before they had antipsychotics. And interestingly enough, the Russian um, psychiatric system ran on behavioural principles and token economies up until about 30 years ago. They, they ran psychiatric institutions in Russia based on behavioural reward systems. And it, it, it works doesn't work as well as antipsychotics, but it, it, it's not completely ineffective. So, so the behaviourist came along and cured King George. And that was good, because it meant that we could say that mental health problems had a medical cause, not a spiritual cause. And generally speaking, the, the medicalisation of mental illness has reduced stigma. We can say, you're not weak, you're depressed. You are allowed to claim benefits. You are allowed to take medication. You are allowed to be in the sick role, etc. So medicalisation has destigmatised things to a certain extent. Obviously, we've got a long way to go in stigma. But the other thing that university, uh, the other thing that um, it did w- was this: was that we went from university back to diversity. And I was saying, you know, at the beginning that we. The first universities were drawing together on this quintessence. They were drawing together these ideas. And, but then it started getting fragmented. And if you look at most universities, they will have two major groups of faculties within them. They will have the arts side of it, where you go to university and you get a Bachelor of Arts or a Bachelor of Divinity, for example. And then there's the science side, where you might go and get a, a, a BSc, a Bachelor of Science, or... Um, an MBBS, Bachelor of Medicine and Surgery, which is the sort of medical degree. And so sciences and physic, which was the old sort of name for for medicine, were in in the sciences side of the university. And there was this split in the university, and never the twain shall meet. And if you think about where that lands us, what you've got is theology is firmly parked in the arts side of it, Science, uh, medicine is firmly parked in the science side of the university, and some people call it the cure of souls or the cure of bodies or something. But it's interesting to think where mental health services fit. On the arts side, you've got narrative, drama therapy, all these kinds of things. Social work, I guess, would would fit on the arts side as well. Counselling, psychology, maybe. On the sciences side, within medicine, you've got psychiatry, you've got experimental psychology, you know, where you do unmentionable things to rats and things like that. That's all on the sciences side of of the university. So there's this split, and we've ended up in diversity. And there ends the history lesson, okay? But hopefully that has been a few hundred years, perhaps to explain why we got into this pickle. And it's particularly a problem with the brain, because the brain and the mind are both inside the skull, and people get very confused. I mean, personally, my 
brain may be in my skull, my mind is bigger than that, my faith is definitely bigger than my skull. But people get very confused, and they also get confused because these guys are saying, well, it's just really just about social inclusion and talking about it enough. And these people are saying, no, there's a brain problem in here, and um, the divinity faculty is usually sort of over there somewhere, and some people wonder whether it's even a part, real part of the university. So, so where does their voice come in? And there's all these different voices shouting. So that's how we got to this mess. End of history lesson. So how can we weave it all together? What's more important? Because if, if you look, if you think about it, I mean, I know it's a gross oversimplification. I was actually sort of cheating a little bit with my 15 billion pounds, because actually 15 billion pounds, you can actually only spend on two things. You can't spend it on spiritual things. Um, the NHS isn't really allowed to do that. I, I know it has chaplains, but generally speaking, the NHS is not going to put billions of its budget into spiritual interventions. That's unlikely to happen. Likewise, the social work budget and the councils are in charge of social inclusion. So the NHS needs to make sure it's paying attention to social inclusion and paying attention to spirituality. And I'm going to talk more about that in the seminar this afternoon when we talk about the church and the NHS. Um, But actually, the NHS is going to spend most of its money on tablets and talking treatments. So Let's spend the rest of the session thinking about those a little bit. And which is most important? And again, there are big arguments about this as to, oh, you know, I've taken a brain scan and I can see this problem here and we're going to give a tablet and we're going to fix that. Or I've got loads of people and I've talked to them and I've made them better and they didn't need tablets and so why put stuff in your brain if you can get it better with talking? They've all got very strong arguments, but we've got to try and tie them together. So I want to introduce you to a bit of a long word The long word is gene-environment interactions. I'm tempted to say that with an American accent. I'm not quite sure why. So gene-environment interactions. And the idea here is that this is all interplaying together. So this this is what people are researching nowadays. It's far better to research gene-environment interactions. So, So what I mean by this is if you take two identical twins and you separate them at birth and... um. One, they, they will have different outcomes because they've had different environments. They've got the same genes but different environments. Or if you take two people and put them in the same environment, so you put them in some terrorist attack, why does one person get PTSD and one person not? And the answer is because their genetics are different. So there's something in here about genetic predisposition, okay, and then environmental stresses... And your genes will give you vulnerability or resilience to the environmental stress source. I'll put all of these slides up on the MindSR website and the Mental Health Access Pack site. So don't feel the need to scribble madly. If you really want me to, come and give me an email address afterwards and I'll email them to you. But they are about 13 megs, so watch out. Prenatal. Okay, we've got this idea that we've got our genes and they get turned on in the womb. And there's also, I've, I've put here the, the intrauterine environment, you know, are, are people smoking with, when, when they're carrying children, etc. Those kinds of things are quite important. And also, you know, the perinatal period, birth asphyxia. We know there's an association between birth asphyxia and schizophrenia, for example. Okay. So, and also between birth asphyxia and many other things, obviously. Um, 
So the prenatal and the perinatal kind of period. You've also got the, the, the postnatal period, and this is the sort of when people are growing up. Freud talked about his psychosexual development being completed by the age of five, and Bowlby and other people have talked about that being, and Do- Susan Donaldson and others who sort of looked at childhood development have said the key areas are the age of five. So, so my children are now five and six, so I can retire now. They're basically, you know, it's kind of like I should just like go, and they can fly the nest when they want to. It's like those gazelles that can run at the age of three days. You know, I've done my child rearing. Both the children are now five. They can bring themselves up. Is that right? So, um, but the first five years is really important. Um, the early brain is very, very important in developing connections and also developing relationships, making sure you go through those psychosocial stages. Now, Freudianism and all that kind of stuff is, 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 is not how Freud left it. It's been reformed and studied since then. But if, you know, we talk about people having an anal fixation, don't we? Okay. What, we mean, what people mean by that is they got fixed, stuck, at the anal stage of psychosexual development. That's what an anal fixation means. It doesn't mean they're interested in certain things. It means they're, <laughs> it means they're fixed, fixed at the anal stage. Okay? So, so, you know, people do get stuck at these early stages. And that results in all kinds of emotional problems if there's trauma, abuse, or just, or just lack of love. This, this is tremendously important. But obviously, parenting and schooling and that kind of thing. And then we're getting into triggers. Psychoactive drugs, the brain, emotional trauma. Physical disease is a biggie. Sometimes physical disease affects the brain directly. So, for example, an underactive thyroid or Cushing's disease, you'll probably get depressed. Okay, that's a biochemical thing. But also physical illness like, you know, osteoarthritis, wear and tear in the joints. Pain causes mental health problems just because it's a big stress in your life and there's loss and grieving of the hobbies you used to be able to do and so on. So, So all of these various different things are coming together and we've got to have a formulation that sort of draws all this together. At some point, this is my random animal picture... Um, at some point, it is horses for courses, okay? So there'll be some things that respond particularly to tablets, some things that respond particularly to talking treatments, but we've got to put it within a formulation of many things that are going on. I'm just going to illustrate this with a, with a story. Um, this is a, a book which apparently has a foreword by somebody I might know, um, but my point, it, it's, it's a fascinating book. Kathy was a medical doctor, early in her training to be a GP, became very, very, very ill, extremely depressed to the point where she had to be hospitalised on a number of occasions. And she ended up having brain surgery for depression, which is pretty hardcore. Okay, it's up there. This happens about six times a year in the UK, just to give you an idea. Only about six people in, in, in the UK will have psychosurgery. It's usually it's for very, very severe obsessive compulsive disorder, occasionally for very severe depression. And she went up to see a friend of mine called Keith Matthews up in Dundee, who's a psychiatrist up there who runs the national unit and, and had the operation. But th- this is her story. I was flown up to Scotland to their brand new unit. They went through the details of the neurosurgery operation. Everyone would require nine months of further therapy. So even after the brain surgery, further therapy. And she'd had quite a lot already. Only one third improved with the brain operation. This wasn't a cure. And there's a risk of getting epilepsy and so on. The operation was nothing like the notorious lobotomies that were performed on mentally ill patients in the past. It would be done under MRI. It's a tiny little snip. Okay, lobotomies... One way to deal with mental illness is to remove half the brain. We don't do that anymore. 
Okay, I'm just going, we don't do that anymore. Okay, um, we're talking about cutting one pathway in, in one part of the frontal lobe in the brain. The operation well, went well, but I was pretty fed up after surgery, even though I'd been warned that nothing would happen immediately. There wasn't going to be a miraculous cure. The brain needs to kind of recalibrate after this and sort its pathways out. Some days after the operation, I rose to go to my room and a thought came into my mind, what about the self-harm? This is someone who self-harmed for a decade or so. I talked to it as though it was a voice and said, I don't want to self-harm anymore. I believe this was the vital decision that the prophecy over me had referred to. So she'd had some prophecies that there would be at some point a, a vital decision. She made a vital decision for Christ in the past. She was going to have to make a vital decision in the future. And she'd been told that through a prophetic meeting. She decided, and said, I was to repeat that response to the self-harm thoughts as they entered my mind. And I've put that up there just to sort of illustrate what we've got here. We've got like neurosurgery, pretty hardcore. Hopefully none of you get as far as that. But we've got tablets, we've got therapy, we've got spirituality. Around this woman is a social environment and a prayer group who used to pray for her. All these things are going on. And Kathy's book is a great book if you want one book to sort of take away from this, to sort of understand more about someone who has experience in all four of those domains. So I'd commend that. It's published by Instant Apostle. Uh, so A Thorn in My Mind is, is really worth a read. Okay. Talking. It's hard to talk, isn't it? It's quite difficult to talk. So you get a bit less of my voice for a second. I'd like you to do a, a, a silly exercise. Okay. Turn to the person next to you. You can do this in twos and threes if you want to. I want one of you to imagine that you've got a fear of heights. Okay. And I want the other person to persuade you to climb up a ladder. And there's two reasons to climb up the ladder. One is, you know, this side of the room, I want you to, uh, you know, the, the aim here is to go up the tower of um, York Minster. Or, you know, let's go up the tower of St Paul's Hammersmith and get a nice view of London, all right? Your job is to persuade the person who's got a fear of heights to go up the tower of London. Your job is to persuade them to go up a ladder because the room's on fire and they have to escape through a window, but the person's got a really bad fear of heights, okay? And if you're in threes, one person can just kind of observe what's going on. So... A few minutes for that, off you go. Thank you. 
Okay, 30 seconds more. Thank you for that. I'm, I'm not going to take feedback because we've only got an hour to get through quite a lot. But I guess I'm just going to point out a few of the things that, you know, I guess will have become clear or perhaps were, were clear. I suppose that the first is, as long as it's, you know, if you actually had a fear of heights, it might have been quite difficult to talk about that, um, even though you really wanted to see the view and really wanted to escape from the fire. Um, the, the second thing is that actually, you know, saying there's a fire doesn't automatically make the person sort of roll over and go belly up and say, oh, of course I'll climb the ladder. It's clicked, you know, I've had a rational moment now. You know, there's no, it's a, it's, 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 it's a ladder. But it might have done, so motivation is important. And then the other thing, of course, is, well, I didn't hear anyone sort of shouting and rowing at each other, but, you know, someone's just like, you know, will you please just climb the blasted ladder? <laughs> is, or, you know, even worse, if you don't climb that ladder, you'll die and everyone will miss you. You know, guilt is a great motivator, isn't it? So... <laughs> Um, but my point is, you know, shouting at people or making them feel guilty can be motivators, but perhaps there's more effective tools that we can learn from psychologists. And I guess one of the big messages from today is that we are here, we are here, aren't we, in, in the bomb shelter here. We're underneath. I'm, I'm trusting these concrete walls are going to stand up because someone who's more clever than me made that concrete beam do that. All right? And you're sitting on a chair that was designed by... Someone from Sweden, maybe? Um, but it, it's very nice, isn't it? But, you know, it's, we let these people design these things. Psychologists have studied the brain now for the best part of 100 years, and, of course, there were psychologists around before that. People date, date Islamic psychology from the 11th century, for example. Um, but there's, there's quite a few, a lot of stuff known about the brain. So we ought to listen to psychologists about how people change. Perhaps not about why people change, you know, because actually... You know, we believe that, that one of the primary purposes of man is, is, is to worship God. That is the, ch the chief end of man, according to the Westminster Confession. But how people change, we can learn a lot from psychologists. So let me give you a, a couple of models. Um, the one on the left is by a chap called um, Vygotsky. And this is called the Zone of Proximal Development, which sounds very trendy. But, but what this basically means is... If I say to you, right, let's suppose you've got a fear of heights. If I say to you, can you go up two steps, you might manage it. But likewise, if you, can you climb like a whole ladder? You can't. It's outside what you can currently do at the moment. I see quite a few people with social phobia, for example. And they can manage to get to clinic. They're dreading that wedding next week. It's outside the zone of where they're currently at. And there's no point, really, in someone repeating the wedding experience. Perhaps they need to go to the wedding. I might even give them some Valium. But it won't be good for them in the sense of it won't heal their social phobia because it's outside their zone of proximal development. There'll be snot and tears, probably. It's like going on a plane. If you have to go on a plane, you can do it. But you don't learn. Nothing, there's no residue from that experience. Okay, you survive it. And from time to time, we all have to go to weddings or have to go on a plane or something. But you don't learn from it. So saying to people, well, you've been on a plane. How come you've got a fear of planes? It, it is not true because people need to learn. So they need to sort of grow within their zone, if that makes sense. 
One of the other big sort of models that is important, I'm just picking two that are general. This model lies behind almost all educational theory and almost all of CBT. Okay? Most learning theories are based on this. So, so that's a really important thing to understand. Most learning theories are also based on this, which is John Bowlby's model of attachment. You cannot learn if you are not in a place of secure attachment. So if you are a resistant attachment, an avoidant attachment, a disorganized attachment, these are all attachment behaviors. You've probably heard the experiment where uh, the mum leaves the kid at playgroup and walks out the room. And healthy attachment is where the kid cries for a minute and then has a play. And when the mum comes back, the kid's clingy for a minute and then is relaxed. Disorganized attachment or avoidant, you know, the kid leaves, mum doesn't know. Uh, mum leaves, kid doesn't know. Okay? And then there's also the, the sort of insecure attachment where um, mum leaves and the kid cries for the entire duration of the playgroup. Okay? So, so understanding a little bit about attachment theory, again, lies behind most forms of talking treatments, particularly analytical therapy. Which, which, and this is what, you know, an anal fixation, all this would be disrupted. There would be an insecure attachment of, of some kind. So... There's a couple of big... I mean, there's other ones that I could have picked, but my, my, my point is, these are biggies. These, these have changed how we understand the human race. And we'd be foolish to ignore them, wouldn't we? These, these, I mean, for example, let's take your average church sermon. You know, preacher preaches an amazing sermon. Where is the adult education theory in that? Okay? You know, you're expecting people to go from zero to hero. Oh, I've got the sermon, amazing, I'm going to go and plant a church. No, most people need to be led on a journey through some kind of series supported by small group material developing over time over an entire year or more you know i've done a three-week sermon series on such and such all my church knows about it is not good adult education theory we we can learn a lot from psychologists in this so those of you who are teachers go talk to your pastor and say pastor can i help you with this please (laughs) in a supportive encouraging uplifting kind of way as opposed to the, why are you talking at the back wall? No one's listening. So, so but we, th- there is a lot that we can learn. And actually, churches that are getting better at understanding how humans change and how humans learn and how humans grow are starting to put some of that into practice. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to insult the four main schools of psychology. So I'm just going to try and explain a little bit about how they work. I'm not going to do them justice, but I'm just going to do a fly-by-wire kind of stuff going through. Okay. Um, these are more so that you've got the names, the slides are there, you can go and have a look at them later. One of the first things that we talk about is person-centred counselling. And the idea of person-centred counselling is if you give people... So this is Carl Rogers who was up here. Now, this can be humanistic. It can be done by Christians. The worldview is not important. Some people bring a very humanistic worldview. M people, what are they? M people used to say, live for the hero inside yourself. Okay, some people bring that view to this, but you don't need to do that. The idea is if you give people empathy, congruence, consistency, and unconditional positive regard, that's the big one. If you love people enough, they will become self-actualizers. That is the big idea. And there's a lot of truth in that. If you just give people enough space, they'll get themselves out of a lot of pickles. What they were looking for was a sounding board. So this is the sort of heart of counselling. You go... You talk to someone, perhaps the person doesn't say very much, but it's enough. Okay, so that's counselling. CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy, will operate in five domains. Okay, the behaviour, the mind or the thoughts, your mood 
and your bodily sensations, like am I feeling sweaty, am I feeling tired, those kinds of things, all sitting within the environment. CBT is more like a science experiment, okay? So, for example, let's suppose you're um, scared of spiders, okay? And logically you know that spiders in this country don't kill you, they're not poisonous, okay, unless someone's let a tarantula escape or something like that. But you, you're trying to work out whether or not... Now, I'll tell you, I'll tell you another story, Okay. Two people leaving London on the train. In one of the, you know those old train carriages where there were just like just the two of you in the little train carriage and no one else could get into your little compartment? So there's these two people sitting facing each other on the train. And a little man in a, in, a, in a little brown suit. And every so often he throws up, tears up bits of paper and throws them out the window. This was back in the days when you could throw stuff out the train windows as well, wasn't it? So he's, he's throwing bits of paper out of the window. And they get about as far as Basingstoke. And the other guy can't contain himself anymore. And, and he says to him, he said, why are you tearing up little bits of paper? Why are you doing that and throwing them out the window? And the little man said, aha, I'm glad you asked. He said, it's to keep elephants off the line. And, um, and the, 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 the other guy said, but there aren't any elephants on the line. To which the little man replied, see, it's working. <laughs> okay. So it's a silly story, but my point is, you know, if you're scared of heights and you've never climbed a ladder, you will never overcome your fear of heights. If you've never not run away from the mouse on the chair, if you've never plucked up the courage to do something differently, you will always stay where you are at. So CBT is about planning an experiment, doing it in a gradual way, in line with Zagoski's principles, okay, and then embedding and learning and changing as a result. So CBT is basically cyclical experiments. They can be thought experiments. They can be actual experiments to, to learn your way out of depression. And the reason for that is most people learn their way into depression. They spiralled down. They dropped out of all the things that were fun. They um, began to lose friends, etc., because they weren't keeping their friendships up, maybe because they were depressed. So they spiral down, you can spiral up. So that's, that's CBT. I'm going to try and explain psychotherapy. Goodness me. How do you explain psychotherapy? Um, this is a great book. I'm not recommending it. I just like the cover because it, it covers my favourite Sigmund Freud quote. And Sigmund Freud quote um, is, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Okay, and the, the point is, you know, people wondered why um, Sigmund Freud had a big cigar. Was he compensating for something? Okay, and my point is, you can get into this silly sort of Freudian sort of things that, oh, you know, he drives a big car, doesn't he? You know, like this. Um, and you can get, make silly Freudian slips and all this kind of stuff. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. But actually, sometimes looking at psychodynamic principles is really, really helpful. So this is a, a drawing painted by a friend of mine of um, James Johnston, who's a, a psychotherapist in, in Leeds, and I've put the, the website on there. This is called The Brick Mother. In the absence of a real mother, people will form attachments to institutions. You probably know people who seem to be more... That the primary relationship in their life is with their psychiatric hospital. Okay, and people are in and out of hospital sitting thinking, why, why do you keep going back to hospital? You know, what's in it for you? It's their mother. Okay, because that is the, is the actual nature of their attachments. If you could actually get into their unconscious mind, their primary attachment figure is with the people who've given them some help over the years. Now, the problem is they're looking for a different kind of help than what the NHS can offer. But that's what's going on. It's, it's, it's the brick mother. Okay, and I've put something in between to try and explain psychotherapy. This is called Milan's Triangles. It's the simplest explanation of psychotherapy I can find. The basic idea is that there is an inner triangle 
there is some anxiety. Uh, you go to your psychotherapist and say, I, I, I went to the bank last week and the bank manager didn't want to give me a loan and I felt really anxious and awful about it. So you have a defence mechanism. The bank manager's an idiot. You know, he, he probably knew I had mental health problems. It's all his fault, okay? But there's some kind of unconscious anxiety deep down below that they weren't loved and affirmed by their parents or something. And the person can't see that. They're projecting everything onto the bank manager. What the psychotherapist will do is they will take a story from the current week. They will also take the dynamics and the denials and the projections that are operating in the therapy session, and they will try to look to the past. And the aim of psychotherapy is to move these three, two triangles around, triangles within triangles, to try and find the defence mechanisms that are hiding the unconscious anxiety from the person's past. Okay? Now, at this precise moment, that probably makes perfect sense to you. When you leave this room, you will forget all of that, and psychotherapy will become mysterious again. Don't worry about it. Okay? <laughs> It, it, it is actually quite simple. Three domains, looking for the unconscious. Okay, that, that, that's what it's about. But it is complex like a therapy, but it, it's not a mist. Okay, there is a logic to it. There is a theory to it. So read about Milan's triangles of conflict and, and of person. Well, hopefully, it, I found it very helpful to explain that. Lastly, there's the biblical counselling movement, and I'm just putting this in perhaps as the most spiritual of the counselling movements is basically is bringing the words of scripture to bear on a person's life. Now, when biblical counselling is done badly, it's take two Bible, Bible verses and call me in the morning if you're still feeling stressed. You know, God loves you. Jesus said, don't worry. What's your problem? Good biblical counselling will allow a person to grow in that Zygotsky way. They will use person-centred counselling principles. They will also use scripture. But it will be like, for example, if I was talking to someone who was depression, depressed, we might say something like, we know that... No, I, I'm not going to try and do that. That's too complicated. Okay, you have to go to the Biblical Counselling UK conference. Okay. <laughs> and there's a great talk on their website called Talking to Depression okay, by a guy called Ed Welch, E. Ed, W-E-L-C-H. He does this brilliant talk as to how you can use scripture and the idea, and this is really important, sin and forgiveness and repentance. How you use those kinds of words talking to someone who's depression, who, depressed who feels like that anyway. Okay. Ed does that really well. So Ed Welsh talking to depression from the Biblical Counselling UK residential last Easter 2014. The idea here, this, this is a diagram of something called the embodied soul. And I think sometimes biblical counsellors want to uh, apply the Bible to a person and expect them to roll over. But what CCEF say and what Biblical Counselling UK say, they say the heart, which is the area for Christian change, you know, that I might take away a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, that I will take my law and write it on your hearts. The heart is, the, in fact, the Hebrew word for mind is heart. You know, it's the area of Christian change. God is out here. The heart of the soul is embodied within a broken body. So if it's in, within a depressed brain, the heart is going to struggle to benefit from the light of the gospel. And what you don't do is shine your light brighter, because that just makes them feel even more useless. They can't get it. What you do is you, you work both with the heart and with the brain. And what the biblical counselling you guys, UK guys will say, which is really good, is the goal of all this is not to make the person not depressed anymore. That is the goal of everything else I've spoken about so far, is to remove depression. The goal, the goal of biblical counselling is to change the human heart. 
And sometimes being depressed can force you to look at your human heart. And sometimes that motivation goes when you are no longer depressed. So it's this tension between not avoiding the issue of our brokenness being because of sin, but understanding that a consequence of that is our brain is broken and we struggle to hear the gospel. Okay, so the idea of the embodied soul, I think, is quite an important one. Now, I'm going at a pace. I hope I haven't mortally offended anyone. I've still got tablets to do, and we've got seven minutes left. Don't panic. We're going to get there, okay? But I am going to crack on, and one of the reasons I can crack on is that there is a resource to help you with this. There is the Mental Health Access Pack, which is a fantastic resource, and we've got an entire article on forms of counselling, an entire article on medication and faith. So a lot of what I've said is kind of within these articles. There's links to further reading on the Mind and Soul website, further reading on the Livability website. So so these two sort of cards from the Mental Health Access Pack will... will, And at the bottom of the counselling one, there's links to, you know, British Psychoanalytical Association, how to find a CBT therapist, all all that kind of stuff is, is there. Moving quickly onto tablets, just to finish off, this is going to be at a pace. I'd like you to do something really simple. Okay, turn to the person next to you, just for like one or two minutes, and say, which of these would you be willing to take as a Christian, and, and why not? Okay, so paracetamol, morphine, chemotherapy, anti-epileptic medication, morning after pill, combined contraceptive pill. One minute with the person next to you, off you go. Okay, I'm just going to draw you back together because I want to get you to lunch. And again, not going to take feedback on this because I think, you know, there are some obvious Christian sort of things. So, for example, the the morning after pill, we know acts post contraception all right now many christians would have particular issues with that but there's obviously particular issues with having an unwanted baby as well but it's a it's a spiritual ethical debate that's my point the combined contraceptive pill well unless you're very good at your um human biology you probably don't know whether that acts before or after contraception okay the short answer is some pills do some pills don't so again it's it's an ethical question depending on what your denomination would would teach Anti-epileptic medication, the reason why I put that in is that clearly acts on the brain. That, I mean, that's where epilepsy lives. You know, we know that. We can actually see that, unlike depression. You know, we know that epilepsy acts on the brain. But most Christians don't have problems with people taking anti-epileptic medication. Yet, 
If you look at the instances of demonic exorcism in the New Testament, there are significantly more, five or six-fold more, deliverances from epilepsy than there are of anything resembling mental illness. So I'd like to take that away and have a think about it. Why don't we have a stigma problem with epilepsy? I suspect it's because we can see it and we're not scared of it anymore, whereas mental illness perhaps we're still scared of, okay? Chemotherapy, awful side effects, but it's worth it if it keeps you alive. Why wouldn't you take antipsychotic medication, which can have awful side effects if it keeps you alive? Paracetamol, yeah, I've, I've never been in a seminar yet where someone's had a problem with taking paracetamol, but the interesting thing about paracetamol is it acts on the brain. It acts on the neurological representation of pain, pain in the spinal cord. It affects how you think about things. It is basically an antidepressant, you know. I don't want the antidepressant to take away how I feel about my depression. I want the Bible to do that. Well, paracetamol just did the same thing, okay? Um, and likewise, morphine, it's strong. There's double effect. Okay, so, so we're worried about taking things that change how we think. That's what paracetamol does. We're worried about things that act in the brain. That's what, that's what epilim does. Okay, so... So just a bit of a, a, a think there as to why the, the, the silly arguments that we use as to why we shouldn't take psychiatric medication. How do they work? The, 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 the science is there, if you want it for later. Cox the enzymes, blah, blah, okay? This is how antidepressants work. Nerve signal comes down here. 5-HT, which is the happy chemical, serotonin, is released and it acts on the downstream brain cell. It's then taken back up, sorry, it's taken down here, it's then taken back up into the cell and it's reused because the body is green. We know the body recycles, okay? So it recycles serotonin, so it comes out of here, acts on there and is reused. The vast majority of antidepressants block the reuptake of serotonin. Some act here, some act at a different point in the recycling cycle, but the vast majority block the reuptake of serotonin. That's all they do. Okay, they're not scary. The result is more serotonin in the gap between the cells, called the synaptic cleft, more transmission in those nerves, more increased mood, if that makes sense. That, that, that's the idea. The problem is, is the word here, antidepressants. It's quite a sort of powerful word, isn't it? Antidepressants. It's like an anti-obesity drug. This, this drug will take away obesity. I mean, it doesn't. What anti-obesity drugs do is they stop fat being absorbed from the gut, so you have some poos. Okay? That's... <laughs> That's how most anti-obesity drugs work, okay? They are fat anti-absorption agents, okay? They, they, they don't dissolve fat, okay? That's liposuction, sorry. <laughs> but my point is, this is a serotonin level increaser, okay? These things increase the level of serotonin. They are not antidepressants. If your serotonin is low it'll bring it up into the right range, okay? That may or may not cure your depression. If your serotonin is not low and you are unhappy, as is the case with many teenagers who have depression, they have normal serotonin, it can make you more impulsive. It can increase the frequency of self-harm. We know this. There was the big Horizon program, wasn't there, about antidepressants causing suicide. We know that if you give people with low serotonin, with normal serotonin, it'll make them more impulsive. We, we know all this. So the, Press have only just found out, okay? They're not addictive. You can have withdrawal. It can be hard to come off these drugs, but this is not morphine. This is not alcohol. You don't develop tolerance. You don't develop drug-seeking behaviour, 
Okay, it doesn't become the salient thing in your life. So that's how antidepressants work. They are serotonin level increases. And that's what I say to patients. I say, this will put your serotonin up. Let's talk about the rest of it now. Okay. Likewise, what antipsychotics do... Now, there's a bit more going on here, because the idea is that in psychosis, one of the root things here is about dopamine overactivity in the frontal lobes. Now, the frontal lobes are... The, this is not a very good picture of a brain. That's my head, like that. Okay? So the frontal lobes are the squishy bit at the front here. We don't really know what it does. And all kinds of important things in live there, like psychosis and crossword ability. And um, all these kind of things live there that don't seem to live in other parts of the brain. It's these blue ones here that we're interested in. We want to deal with the mesocortical and the mesolimbic tracts, particularly something called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Again, you have to say that with an American accent, I don't know why, but it's just a, a long word, and that's where the overactivity is in psychosis. What you don't want to do is block the green one. Any of you who know any biology will know that in the striatum, the nigrostratum, that's what's dying in Parkinson's disease. Okay? So if you block the green one by accident, that's where the side effect of stiffness comes, causing Parkinsonism. Not Parkinson's disease, but the uh, pill rolling tremor, the, the, the stiffness, the mask-like face, that's where that can happen. If you block the purple one, then a couple of things can happen. First of all, you can release a hormone called prolactin, which can result in, in breast milk being produced in both women and men, and that's slightly freaky for guys. So I always tell guys who are going around psychotics, this might happen. Don't worry, it's reversible, okay? Um, but that can be a problem. And longer term, those effects on hormones, and also we don't quite know how it does it, but most antipsychotics seem to cause this thing called metabolic syndrome. They act on histamine, which means they're sedating, which can be, it can be quite nice to have an improvement in your night's sleep. What you don't want to do is be knocked out. It can be quite nice when we take sedating medication in the short term, because if it helps you sleep, it's better to be sleep than staring at the ceiling, I can assure you. Um, but over time, things that stimulate histamine also stimulate appetite. So we know these drugs stimulate appetite, and there's obesity, there's the hormones that come here from prolactin. These things combine together to cause a metabolic syndrome, lots of cardiac risk factors, and this is often in people who smoke quite a lot as well. Many people with schizophrenia will smoke quite a lot due to social exclusion in the main. Okay, so we need to be careful with antipsychotics. But if we can find drugs that primarily act on the blue, and we say to people, these are just dopamine decreases, we now need to do a whole bunch of other stuff to reintegrate you with your family, to help get you some benefits, try and make up with some people who, who you've fallen out with, then there's an awful lot that we can do. So these are just dopamine decreases in the frontal lobes. So we've had dopamine increases and dopamine decreases. I'm going to skip that. Skip that as well. So just to summarise, because we are just into lunchtime, we've talked about these root causes. Okay? I hope I've given you a little bit of information about them. You don't need to be an expert. I'm not going to quiz you on the way out and say, who was the name of that bloke who had those triangles? Okay. It was Milan. Not different to Milan. It's in Italy. And they invented systemic therapy and family therapy. Easy to get confused. But Milan, M-A-L-A-N. So anyway, there's a bit, a bit, a bit, my point is you don't need to know the knowledge. That, that, that's my job is to have that knowledge and try and use that in an appropriate kind of way. But I want you to know that there's, there's method in the madness. There's, there's reasons why these things are used. But they are just part of trying to provide some best answers to some root causes. 
I wonder if, as a result of this seminar, you would now... I've changed it to billion, did you see? Um, I wonder if now you would reallocate your £15 billion differently. Um, are psychiatric medications expensive? Yes. To have some antipsychotic drug will cost several thousand pounds a year if you go for a modern one with less side effects. Is that expensive? Yes. Is that prohibitively expensive? No. They spend much more on chemotherapy and surgery. Is it expensive given that mental health problems are the biggest cause of morbidity across and mortality in certain groups across the globe? So suicide is the leading cause of death among young men and in women who are, around, uh, who are in the postnatal period. It is the leading cause of death. Okay? Are these drugs expensive? Are the side effects too bad? Are the treatments not Christian enough? Or maybe if we understand the model, we can learn from what psychologists have learnt and put that perhaps into a Christian mind frame to you. I'd commend Biblical Counselling UK if you want to really understand that embodied soul. They're the best integration model that I've come across. They've got um, a big conference, a residential and a conference in London next Easter. Just to remind you again, there's a couple of things there on the access pack where both of these things are written down in a bit more detail. And this, this talk will be available on there. It'll probably also come through the Mind and Soul website at some point. Just to say thank you very much.